0: Started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going.
1: If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards as well as a shout out on the show. Thanks to our latest donor, Tom Brogan.
0: Tom is extraordinarily busy. He has been writing plays for years, but recently has moved uh, to writing short stories and non-fiction, and he's working on a novel. He's also got a contract to write a book about Scotland at the 1982 World Cup. Uh, He puts out a monthly newsletter on writing and he also co-hosts a podcast. He's been enjoying Always Take Notes and it's great to hear. So good luck with everything going forward, Tom.
1: We've recently launched a new tier for our most generous supporters. If you pledge $20 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help with handling interview audio for my magazine work. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features speechwriter Simon Lancaster, and here's a snippet. What traits do I think is most important for a speechwriter, I think probably it's ultimate empathy being able to put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're writing for and describe the world as they see it, telling stories from their life, talking about what they care about, and capturing their tone of voice. I mean, speechwriting is such a weird job. It's like
0: Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to Rosie Nixon editor of Hello! Magazine and novelist.
1: We spoke with Rosie about her early work at teen publications, about what goes on behind the scenes at Hello! Magazine and about the intersection of writing and kindness.
0: It's a great episode, we hope you enjoy it.
1: Rosie, it's really great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if we could start just by talking about your growing up and your your early interest in writing I saw in one interview that you used to to write notes to yourself I think as a as a child um could you tell us a bit about yeah about kind of where you come from as a writer and then you'll you'll move on to university in Brighton and so forth
2: yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, yes, as a young child, I guess you could have called me a prolific letter writer. Uh, my mum um, liked to keep scrapbooks of lots of our kind of early childhood work and it's full of letters, generally me telling on my brother or sister for something naughty that they had done. Like um, there's one funny letter that gets wheeled out quite often on um, birth- significant birthdays where I told my mother that my brother had put his shoes in the bathroom sink and turned. The tap on and how naughty he was. Um, so, and I used to write lots of thank you letters and always my own invitations to parties and things like that. Um, and then as I got a bit older, I kept a diary. Um, so I have my teenage diaries still with me at home. And they're a bit like the female kind of Adrian Mole. And they're very funny and take me right back into that sort of teenage angst. So I guess I had the writing gene from a young age. My mother was actually trained as an English teacher. Um, And there was lots of books constantly in our house. Uh, My father was actually a headmaster of a very big comprehensive school in London. So I was in a very sort of writerly world from an early age.
0: And when you left university, you entered publishing. Is that right? Um, What informed your decision to, to take that route to begin with? Well,
2: like so many graduates, it was actually quite lucky that I landed my first role, which was work experience within uh, children's book publishers in Brighton. So I went to the uni- University of Sussex, was keen to stay in Brighton for a few more years. And I was actually doing some babysitting for one of our neighbours in London, who happened to ask me what I might like to do. And I had been quite inspired by um, a tutor that I had at University at Sussex called Carol Dyehouse, who wrote for a number of women's magazines and I remember hearing her talking about an article that she had out in Elle that week or one that she was working on for Marie Claire and thinking, gosh, that sounds like a really exciting career. And um, yeah, I was babysitting for this child and I remember the father asking what I planned to do and I told him I was quite interested in journalism and he mentioned that he had a friend who worked at a book publishers in Brighton, which was where I lived. So I sort of knocked on their door and said, is there any work that I could do for you at the publishers? Kind of got them to take me on as work experience and then literally worked my way up. So I guess I had that lucky break in that I got the position of work experience, but I was extremely badly paid, uh, next to nothing. Worked in a pub and a shop in Brighton, um, but really, but quickly moved up, became an assistant editor and then an editor of children's books and then segued into magazines, which we'll go into probably next.
1: Yeah, precisely. Um, Why did you move into magazines and why in particular into teenage magazines? Could you tell us a bit about about why you did that move and then what working at Bliss was like?
2: Yeah, but it well after a good grounding in children's books, um, where I worked for three years at McDonald Young Books down in Brighton. And then I'd still had that kind of urge to want to work in magazines. Um, And again, I should have said when I was a child, I I loved magazines. I had a subscription to Smash Hits. I was the child that cut out all the song words and put them together and make my own magazine along with a mixtape of um, the charts. And I used to subscribe then to Sky Magazine, really loved that. And just that whole feeling of having a magazine in your hands, feeling that it was something topical and relevant. Um, so when I I saw a job advertised as editor of Barbie magazine, <laughs> and I had just moved back up to London from Brighton at this time, and um, and sort of thought, oh, that's like a children's magazine. Maybe I could that could be my segue from children's books into magazines. I applied for this job, didn't know anybody in the magazine world, um, and got it. And that was a very Steep learning curve, because it was just myself and an ed and a designer running the magazine. Uh, a fortnightly title for girls. It sold a lot of copies at the time, um, and I did everything on it, from writing the copy, writing stories about Barbie and Ken, to producing word searches, puzzle pages, flat planning the whole issue, subbing my own copy, sending it off to production, creating the cover, doing photo shoots with the Barbie dolls with a photographer, um, and it was in a way an amazing training ground because I learned I learned by my from my mistakes as well. Well, um, there was one kind of catastrophic mistake where a cover went to press with the word free T-shirt for every reader on it instead of T-shirt. And that was obviously a major disaster. But when I saw that Chromalink came back, sort of managed to get it just in time, went to talk to the top boss and said this has somehow kind of gone through and we sort of managed to stop everything and I have never made a mistake on a cover since then. I mean that would have been catastrophic if that went on sale um, but I made my mistakes, kind of learnt how the whole process worked, went down to the printers, saw the magazine coming off the printing press um, and, and that was an amazing sort of starting point but obviously it wasn't my ambition to work at Barbie magazine forever.
0: And how long were you, how long were you there?
2: I was there for a a couple of years, I think, um, because I then probably Barbie for about a year. And then I moved on to launch with another editor, a magazine called Go Girl that was for preteen girls. That's still going, actually. Um, But we sort of came up with the concept for that magazine. And again, I was writing everything, writing the features. And then from there, I moved on to um, got a job at EMAP on Looks magazine which was my first sort of move into kind of the more, the bigger kind of publishing houses. Um, Worked at Looks Magazine at a time when celebrity was really beginning to sell. Um, And I was initially production editor. Um, That was the job that they had going, so I applied for it. And obviously I had a lot of production experience too from the role at Barbie, although I really wanted to be a writer. Um, worked in that role for about a year and then it was Margie Conklin who has now go- gone over to the New York Post, she she ended up editing Elle magazine actually for a long time, who saw something in me and promoted me to features editor when that job became available and that was a really big leap sort of from production into features which is where I felt you know I was really at home and where I really wanted to be. When
1: did you move on to, to, the, to Bliss then? How did the how did the trajectory continue?
2: And then from Looks, I went on to Bliss. Looks actually closed. Yeah, it was a title that EMAP closed. And I was offered another role at Bliss magazine that could be, I remember I was given the choice of either being featured editor or celebrity editor, which was a newly created role um, at a time when magazines were seeing that celebrities and well-known personalities like was happening across the branding kind of world, um, was starting to sell magazines as, w- as well as selling products. Um, so I thought, gosh, celebrity, that sounds kind of interesting. I was doing lots of celebrity interviews anyway at Looks and would have been as Features Editor at Bliss. So I made that decision, which, which has stood me in very good stead and obviously started cultivating my little black book from then.
1: And what was the kind of... How did the teen magazine landscape look at that time? And, and there were quite, it was quite a lot of debates, weren't there, about how these magazines worked and how they, how, what sort of tone how advisory they were and things?
2: Yeah, I mean, it had come on a long way by the time that I was there, and Bliss and Just 17 were kind of rival titles, and there was Sugar magazine as well, another very popular one. Um, but I think at that time as well, I started to understand the responsibility that you have as a journalist, and that is something that's really been at the core of my um, ethos as as an editor since since day one really and actually since the Barbie days um, that the responsibility that we had in providing content to a very impressionable audience whether that was the sort of pre um, sort of tweens um, that were at the very young magazines or, or teenage girls Um, And I remember being very conscious about the type of cover star that we put on the front, that they weren't going to be skinny, kind of always, you know, white, perfectly formed um, model types, but that we would sort of be representative. Um, and, And I think team magazines have a really important role to play. You know, they are like the big sister of of their their an audience and it's really important that the information that you're conveying is is responsible and honest, um, talks to them in the right language, um, but is there as an information source too.
0: In terms of your celebrity coverage that at that point, was it you pitching people you wanted to interview or was it already sort of working with PRs, seeing who was on a sort of promotional circuit?
2: Yeah, a bit of both. A bit of both. Obviously you would get access to talents. Um when they had something to promote and well and that obviously made them relevant to the audience in that month so it was lining up all of those things um but i would do most of the interviews myself as well so that was a great experience and it was all things from member interviewing gareth gates um when he had just won pop idol did he win or oh, will actually won didn't he but gareth actually was, was the more. i think he was number
1: two i think he was yeah. number he
2: two was yeah winner. but it was actually gareth that was more popular so the kind of teenage girl fan base and i remember we often had fans queuing up outside the building um when we wow. had a big pop band in i remember doing blues first ever interview um, helping to sort of break those teenage um teenage sort of bands Um, But I remember interviewing people like Julia Stiles as well, American um, actresses were big for us, and Kelly Osbourne, the Osbournes was booming at that time. I remember doing an interesting interview with her. So I started travelling to LA a bit at that point as well, I remember going to LA to interview Kelly.
1: I remember reading in, a, in an interview once with, with Charlie from Busted that, you know, he, his, his like decision, who I'm sure you cross paths with, but his decision to go and be like a serious grown up adult or something was like he was doing some smash hits interview. He's like, no, I'm like a tortured artist. You're not sort of understanding me in this, in this context. <laughs> yes,
2: I know. Sometimes they could take themselves very seriously. I remember in that... Interview with Blue, they were all just so into the music that they were just all like off on their own singing to themselves and kind of <laughs> totally in the zone. <laughs> and there I was asking them about what colour their duvet was and things that we thought our audience might be interested in. Um, but I remember that it was the So Solid crew. Do you remember them? I- I'm familiar with their work, yes. They, there was a queue all around the block at EMAP at Endeavour House in Covent Garden when, when um, So Solid crew came into Bliss.
0: How did you learn to um, wrangle your celebrity subjects? As you said, you had to ask sort of questions that they maybe thought were beneath them. How do you get them on side and get them to produce answers that are more than one word? I think
2: I've always had quite a good ability to get on well with people. And certainly that's, you know, one of the key skills of being a journalist. Um, But also I was asking them things that, I mean, they knew they wanted to appeal to their fan base as well. um, And they knew that, you know, talking about how tortured they were wasn't necessarily going to sell them (laughs) singles. Um, (laughs) So I think they kind of knew how to play the game as well and had been briefed um and i just really loved it i've never really been starstruck i think maybe if i met the queen i might be starstruck but um i haven't been and i've always managed to get a rapport with somebody and there's nothing more exciting as a journalist than sitting down and having an idea of where you might want a conversation to go and having somebody open up to you. And I've been fortunate enough to be in that position many times. And what were your,
1: your subsequent moves? I've got New Woman, Red, Glamour, Grazia. Is that right? That's right. As to how it, how it works out. What, was, what, what were you sort of linking? What, what, what path were you following as you, as you moved through those publications? Well, I've
2: yeah. kind of gone up in age, haven't I? So I often think I'm going to end up at Saga magazine at some point, or the lady maybe. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) um and I guess I was ultimately striving to be in the women's glossy magazines but then I've obviously found a home that's a very natural fit for me where I've been for a long time at hello I've been here for 13 years now um and in a way it's the culmination of all of those experiences that I've had on all of those other titles I think certainly when I worked at um red and at Glamour magazine, which is an amazing experience on very established titles. And I worked at Glamour when it had just gone to handbag size and was really such a buzzy title to work on at the time. And we were doing shoots with big A-list stars and I was flying to LA and New York quite a lot and shooting the likes of Britney Spears um, and shooting sort of Kim Cattrall or people who were in Sex and the City. so, and Jennifer Aniston, it was an amazing experience. Um, and But then I sort of started to feel that I had a bit of a drive to experience a, um, a quicker turnaround of copy, because often on a monthly magazine, there's a lot of planning and stuff going on in the first two weeks, and then it would all really come together in the second two weeks, and actually in the final week. And I really loved that buzzy atmosphere. So, when um Grazia launched, and I had a call from Jane Bruton, who was the editor, asking me to go and meet her to help um boost their celebrity and entertainment content, it felt like a really exciting move um uh, moving to a weekly um and then of course, yeah I, I loved it um I really liked the pace of it, but still having the glossy uh magazine attributes as well
0: and then from uh we're sort of rattling through your career history here but you moved on to hello which is obviously where you are now um could you tell us a little bit about the history of the magazine um you've talked a lot in past interviews about the brand and the importance of branding in terms of a, a magazine title um yeah could you just tell us a little bit more about the brand of hello and um why you think it uh resonates today
2: yeah, well, Hello Magazine is the sister publication of Ola, which launched in Spain in 1944, really a trailblazer, the first magazine of its kind, documenting the rich and the famous and the fabulous. Um, and they had this fantastic phrase that they used when Hola launched, which was la espuma de la vida in Spanish, which means the froth of life. And I just love that. And I think it really kind of encapsulates what Hello is about too. So after the great success in Spain, the family launched Hello magazine over here in the UK in 1988. And it's still very much a family business, third generation now. Um, So my boss is the owner who's over in Madrid. Um, and it really, it was to take a look inside of the lives of the rich, the famous and the fabulous, to be an uplifting place, unashamedly positive and celebratory, Um, and it's become an iconic title over that time. We've managed to weather lots of changes in trends for publishing, Um, the advent of the internet and we now have a thriving digital business as well we've got 30 million unique users worldwide which is by far the largest of any women's title in the UK online Um, and and we've really stuck to that USP of positive reporting and I'm very proud and protective of that um, and I think when I first joined the brand, I sort of got a sense that sometimes Hello was seen as a bit of a soft touch and I wasn't really fully aware of how it works either. It was a slight mystery because I'd i worked at Condé Nast and for Hachette um, and I'd worked for EMAP for many years and I didn't really know about this kind of independent family business but it gets under your skin, I have to say. And it's actually very liberating just having the owner as my boss. So he's very open to creative concepts that I have and he's always there at the end of the phone um, when I need to speak to him. Um, So, yeah, so instead of it feeling like a soft touch, although, you know, the quality of our journalism wasn't, you know, of a newspaper standard, I kind of felt like, that wasn't true anyway but also the access that we got to people and the fact that we were trusted and positive meant that we got these amazing scoops like huge world exclusive weddings we got the first images of very famous people's babies and they invited us into their homes and that kind of content continues to sell really well with our for us along with obviously royal content which has become a huge part of our business um, and I think we're the only brand really in the UK that's managed to harness that popularity of the royal family successfully.
1: Could we talk a bit about about the royals? I saw in an interview that you, I think it was a few years ago, but you described William Kate as, as the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, how does, it, how does it actually work in terms of your relationship with the palace and getting access and, and that kind of thing? Like, we really love on the podcast to sort of lift the lid on all this stuff. So how, you know, how... How do you go about getting those? Well, How I wouldn't say
2: we get any special treatment. I mean, the way that the Royal Pest Press Pack works is that um, uh, we have a member of the Royal Pack and they get invited to engagements the same as um, any other publication. And they have a rota, so they share copy amongst them. So we don't get any particular special treatment. But we know that we are read in all the Royal Households um and so we are sort of very conscious of that relationship um and we know that our reader absolutely loves pouring over images of royal engagements from that week so i think our big glossy photos and our format has a lot to do with it in that a piece of royal news might be front page for one day of a newspaper but then you buy hello the following week and there are 10 pages you know going into great detail about what they did and I think they appreciate that we show the multi-aspects of their career of their um, roles as well as royals we're not just about what the Duchess of Cambridge was wearing on that engagement we will actually talk about the why she was there what the engagement's about we'll speak to the people that she met and the people that were hosting her and we go into greater depth.
0: Of course Meghan Markle is part of the um of the Royal Family and she's spoken out about the British press and sort of intrusions into her privacy. Were there conversations within Hello about how you should cover the, um, cover the Sussexes in, in light of the of her comments,
2: well, yeah, of course, I mean there are conversations every day about how we should cover any royal story, um, but I actually met um, up with the Duchess of Sussex with Meghan shortly before they made the announcement they were leaving the royal family, and she thanked me for being a kind publication. Um, which was really great to hear, you know, that she didn't lump us. Because I think I do find it very frustrating, I'm sure lots of other editors too, when the British press is sort of lumped together and given this bad name because of one or two articles that have appeared in other publications and legal situations that might be going on. Um, so that sort of felt unfair to us and it was nice that they recognised the role that we have. I mean, frankly, we sell with good news. <laughs> So when, when you find a formula that works for you, then you do more of it. With
1: the cover you sent over to us, the, um, the wedding cover from, from William and Kate, could you just tell us about how, how you went about putting together that issue and, and then also how it was received once it was published?
2: Yeah, well, that is a reflection of a kind of dream issue of Hello, really, because we are a hybrid, really, between a newspaper and a glossy magazine. So there's nothing more exciting. For for us, a royal wedding kind of is the ultimate. So we come into the office on very, very early that morning and we had it all meticulously planned as much as we could, given all the information that we were provided with in, in advance from royal households and then we work like a newspaper so we've got reporters out all over town there are a hundred odd empty pages of the issue on a flat plan when we come in and then we all we're a small team but we all have very specific roles in the process and most of the team at hello have worked at the magazine for a long time so we're like a well-oiled ship and um we know how to how to work um and and then, and then all the photos come in, so actually, one of my greatest challenges on a day like that is sifting through with the creative director and editor thousands of images picking the best ones because Hello is really known for its photography um so yeah, working like that, dividing up the day into features, and then feeding in exclusive content as it comes in from our reporters all across town um and our relationships and knowing that we're producing an issue that's going to stand the test of time there's a souvenir quality to an issue of hello like that a sort of collector's feel that this is something to keep hold of and eventually end up in a box in the loft and be enjoyed by the great grandchildren in years to come as um as, as a moment in time um think of hello as the magazine of record And actually, we've had um, researchers and costume designers and people involved with all kinds of productions that have come to Hello to look through our back copies. Because you pick up any um, issue of Hello since 1988 and you have got there a snapshot of British life. You know, the fashions, the hairstyles, what was happening politically, who were the movers and the shakers of the time, what was happening in film, in culture,
0: um, all of that. So um yeah um i think i read that it was a 24 a full 24 hour working day when you put together that issue in general now what's your um working day like as editor-in-chief how's and also your working week um obviously probably before covid times i imagine it's uh not quite the same now
2: Yeah, but I don't think it will
0: go back to quite what it was either
2: post-Covid. So, uh, yeah, it has been a very difficult, different time, obviously. We've all been working from home for the last year, uh, which has gone amazingly smoothly. I have to say our IT department were fantastic at the beginning with setting everybody up because we have a tight weekly schedule. We go to press every Friday evening, and we're on sale on the monday, although we are we do have some flexibility and we can hold the issue open over a weekend if we need to if we know something big's happening um but that so the week kind of grows in pace on the print side from the monday um but of course, we have a huge digital operation now as well, which is operating twenty four seven We are pretty much a twenty four hour operation we even have writers in the states now. Um, filing their copy and uploading news to the site and our social channels. Um, so it's a busy old time, but obviously since there have been no events, um, things like that all fell away, obviously with COVID. And I used to be out several times a week at events. Um, so we've missed all of that content. So, But actually it's been a very creative time. We've had to really look at what our USP is, what is our role, for our audience during a pandemic. And we all felt very strongly, and certainly I did, that we needed to be uplifting. We needed to provide entertainment. We were gonna be a politics-free zone. And we were gonna take our audience away from the stresses and the strains that everybody was facing in their day-to-day life and be a place of comfort and to transport them, really, in that 20 minutes that you might take with a cup of tea to sit on the sofa and be away from your screen as well, you know, to have a moment with a magazine in your hand.
0: Message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Marta's story.
1: If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time, she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives.
0: If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V I T S O E.com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606.
1: Vitsu, Makers of Long Living Furniture by Dieter Rams. Two points that often come up in in discussion of hello in in the media are um, the question of copy approval and the question of paying for stories. What is the policy that the magazine has on, on yeah yours.
2: well paying for stories i mean is quite i've found it absolutely laughable the sums that are bandied around that hello magazine has paid for exclusives and i can tell you now they're categorically not correct i mean if we were spending a million pounds here and had this bottomless checkbook then the magazine would have gone bust a long time ago um so we only pay when there is sometimes above and beyond um, any publicity that a star might need to do in the name of a project. If we're getting access to a wedding, um, we often pay because that is not a dress rehearsal. You know, it's not a photo shoot. That is a very personal day for them. And we will offset that with what we expect to sell. So, you know, that it it would be worth us achieving that content. Um, But we do spend a lot on our shoots as well. We have really high production values. And copy approval is only given if it's factually sort of necessary to do so, um, because it would be terrible if we got the names wrong of the in-laws on somebody's wedding feature. And again, people do that so that they've got something to give back to their fan base in a really big moment. And again, to store that copy of Hello to show to their great grandchildren. So I'm not adverse to it if um, it's really you know likely to be a deal breaker for the star. Um, But it's not something that we just offer up on every piece because I think that, you know, is really difficult on the level of journalistic integrity.
0: So your preference would be to sort of um, run facts and spellings and stuff past them rather than send them the kind of the whole article before it goes out.
2: Yeah. Or sometimes it's easier to send the whole article for them to check all of the facts, you know, and that nothing's been taken out of context context but there would be like a highly a lot of negotiation between any requested changes and you know and we do have to do we do a great service to our audience we're going to ask our our subjects difficult questions and we're going to cover that elephant in the room sort of area of their life um, because we have to you know we're not here to sort of whitewash over somebody's life Um, we want them to talk honestly and to open up to us but we'll work with them to find a way that they are happy um, to do so.
1: What effect has the rise of Mail Online had on on the kind of ecosystem of Hello?
2: Um, Not too much actually digitally we've had the most incredible um, few years of great um, growth Um, and we're a very different kind of Um, sight aren't we I think that's kind of obvious like hello is very celebratory in tone we're very clear about our ethos for the magazine and the approach that we take to stories and we play the long game it really is our in our interest to work closely with the stars Um, and that's why we are driven by so many great showbiz exclusives Uh, it's just very different in tone
0: could you tell us sort of on that note about your um um, About Hello's Kindness campaign.
2: Yes. Yeah, so we launched our Hello to Kindness campaign. Um, in January 2019, yeah. And at the time, it was in response to some growing negativity that we were seeing online, especially aimed at the Duchess of Cambridge and the Duchess of Sussex. So lots of negative comments about the two, almost kind of pitting them against each other.
1: And were these on on your own social threads, right? On They
2: were on thread. our social threads, yeah. And, I mean, they were all over the internet as well. Um, and then sort of you know, users would then get into arguments with each other. And there were some really abusive, sexist, racist, just horrible comments being made. And our social media teams were having to spend time policing all of these comments. And it was actually from a conversation that our royal editor had with one of the royal households that found that they were experiencing exactly the same we felt that we were in a good position within the media to make a stand and say that actually this kind of bullying behaviour wasn't okay and didn't have a place in our world. Um, and so we decided to launch the campaign to promote a kinder attitudes online. And the idea that people should speak to each other and treat each other in the online world the same as they would in the real world. If you met um, Meghan Markle in the street, would you say that to her? Well, probably not. So why was that okay to be online and just to promote more accountability online? And and the movement really took off. The campaign gathered great steam. We got global coverage and pick up for it. Um, and it resonated with our audience and we did start to see things change online and we blocked comments and re- deleted users and you know really did all we could to make our channels feel like a positive place so it, it was an extension of the ethos that we were already practicing at Hello but in a sense it modernized it and brought it out there into the online world.
1: I saw this interesting line I think it's in your bio saying you're a passionate believer in the power of kindness and always looking for the next big story and I was wondering how do you reconcile those two points because they're not there's not a straight dovetail between the two right in some ways between you know journalistic inquiry and
2: i think there really is yeah for me kindness is a choice you know you can always choose whether you're going to act respond to any given situation with kindness or not and i think you can you know, it's same when you're doing an interview with somebody, if there is a, a sort of an area of their life that they're not keen to talk about, there is a way to frame it that everybody feels comfortable with. And I think that kindness does seem sometimes need to be inspired or learnt, And you have to stop and check yourself sometimes and think, oh, actually, I was going to do that. But that actually isn't a very kind response. So I'm going to go this way. And I feel that it always works to your benefit if you do that. I've just written a book actually that's coming out and um, with HarperCollins their HQ imprint in November called Kindness Counts and I've actually delved into my little black book and got lots of um influential um and famous personalities to talk to me about kindness and it's been so interesting the power of kindness you know a smile a, a little sort of supportive message these are small things that don't cost much that have a huge impact and collectively can change the world
0: could we move on to talk about your novels um firstly when you first uh, decided you wanted to write them and when on earth you found the time to actually put pen to paper Yes, I did put on some makeup today because
2: I do feel slightly tired. Uh, But The Stylist was my first novel and it came out in 2016. And I guess it was a natural progression for me because we've talked, I love writing, I always wanted to be a journalist and obviously as I've become an editor and then editor-in-chief I've been further and further removed from the writing process. Although I do still write pieces for Hello when I can, I've got an article in this week's issue um, because I am still hands-on with that and, and I love it. Um, but the stylist, the idea came to me actually when I w- was working at Hello, and I realised I'd done most of the research already during my career in glossy magazines. It's about a girl from London um, who gets a job assisting a big stylist to the stars during awards season. So the book is set between London and LA during the roller coaster of awards season, um, the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes, and finally the Oscars. Um, and it's a romantic comedy and I used lots of the experience that I'd had of being on red carpets at all of those events and of attending those events and and um, seeing the stars prepare. I remember when I worked at Grazia magazine, I was out covering the Oscars one year and did a piece shadowing Mr Armani, Giorgio Armani, the day before the Oscars. Um, in his atelier in LA and all the big stars came in for their fittings I sat next to Clint Eastwood and had a wonderful chat with him for a while when he was waiting to have his suit fitted and he won the Oscar that year for Million Dollar Baby so I mean it was incredible to be in that environment um, and I just thought this is so fascinating and I obviously wrote the piece for Grazia and then And had always been fascinated when you see those red carpet images of stars just seamlessly sort of wafting down a red carpet, the amount that has gone in behind the scenes to create that moment and just what it means. I mean, to the staff, fashion is an alternative economy in Hollywood, and there is perhaps more lucrative contracts to be won in the fashion and beauty world at the end of awards season than than you might have made in producing that movie that you won the Best Actress Award for. So...
1: You described your fiction as commercial with a, with a comedic tone, which I thought was a kind of astute way of, of looking at it. I was wondering, do you think the, the term chick lit, would you, would you embrace that or would you reject it? Do you think it still has it's still a useful label? How do you feel about that? Do
2: you know what? I just think it's great that people read and that they find books that they enjoy. And I'm really not precious about what you want to label it. Um, If you if somebody enjoyed that book and picked it up and felt that it fitted into a chiclet um, sort of label for them, then fine. You know, for somebody else, it's commercial women's fiction. I'm really not fussy about that at
0: all no you said you've done a lot of the research already just from your own sort of experiences but um a question we ask novelists is um about whether a plotter or a plunger so do, do you work out the structure of your plot before you before you put um before you start writing or do you sort of just dive in and see where see where you go
2: Actually a bit of both. Um, I work out the synopsis so I have a rough idea of where it's going but then definitely I believe the characters take you on their own kind of journey once you get really into the book. Um, Sometimes I've written the end as well. Um, My latest book I had a really clear idea of the ending before I knew exactly how I was going to get there. Um, So I actually wrote the last chapters quite early on. Um, but then I went back and tweaked them because, as I say, yeah, as you get into a book, you're, you get to know your characters and they do begin to take on a life of their own, I think. So I think if for me anyway, I have to be slightly free with the synopsis um, and not feel too wedded to it.
1: And I I saw that you you write in a in a coffee shop called Bellamy. Is that what 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 is useful for you about the coffee shop environment?
2: Well, again, I used to pre COVID, um, but I I think that was partly because I had very young children and needed to get out of the house to be able to concentrate. There was something like the umbilical kind of pull of having your baby in the home made it quite difficult to switch off and focus on creative writing I'm a bit more able to do it now they're slightly more grown up and I hide myself away up here in our, in my room at the top of the house and it's quite peaceful but if I'm really on a deadline and I need to get the words down I'm a bit of a binge writer I would say I often sort of manage to convince my husband to allow me to go away for sort of three days um, and I go to a hotel room and pretty much lock the door and stay in there till I get all the words down. And that's really is my happy place. I love it. And and I think there's something about like with the cafe, of not being in your own home, so not distracted by the noises and the things that you could be doing at home. I think it's all about getting the headspace really. And a hotel room for me is the ultimate because it's immaculate and you're you're and it's peaceful generally. And there are nice slippers.
0: Um, that, that is important. I'm wearing slippers right now. Um, <laughs> am I right in thinking you started work on your second novel though while you were on maternity leave? Um, I
2: did, yeah. But the, the Amber Green Takes Manhattan followed on from The Stylist. Um, it was a sequel to it. And so I kind of, yeah, I got some of that done when I was on maternity leave. and I really loved having another project, if I'm honest. I found it quite hard just only focusing on the new baby. And, and and writing is my hobby. I really feel that I need it in my life to feel fulfilled. So it never really feels like a job. It's it's more a hobby to me, which I'm very lucky to have. Uh, maybe one day it will become a career um, in its own right. We'll see. Um, so I actually really, if I'm honest, I kind of needed it and, and really enjoyed having that going on too.
1: One question we ask every guest on the show is about money and how it interfaces with their writing life. So be as candid or as guarded as you want. But throughout your career, both you know doing magazines and moving into novels, how has money had an impact on your writing life?
2: Well, I haven't made a huge amount from my novels. I mean, they're kind of well the the stylist has actually been optioned for a movie so that will be very exciting when that happens and there is a a script that's written for it and you know you make money with the option as well so that's sort of something that I'm obviously very excited about creatively as well as financially Um, but then I've always had a you know a secure job really in magazines I've always worked in-house so that has helped support me and the family um, and it also enabled me to pursue my hobby. Um, it's given me that sort of stability to do it.
0: Um, and in terms of uh, just one more sort of financial question, um, you mentioned that Hello is a very small team. Do you take on interns or sort of work experience people and do you, do you pay them um, like an entry level salary?
2: Yeah, we do. We pay an entry level salary for a features intern, um, which we have a new one every six months. Um, they're generally graduates and a couple of them have gone on to find jobs within the business or we've helped them, you know, and kept in touch with them throughout their next steps. We also have a diversity internship starting um, and that is with City University. So we're looking at more diverse students from diverse backgrounds to help give them an entry into the magazine world because we felt that we were needed to improve our position with regards to diversity and we've taken great steps towards doing that because um, I think the magazine industry can feel a little sort of one-dimensional and maybe not a place that is completely inclusive. How big is the team? How many people work for Hello? There are 22 on the magazine print team um, in editorial, and then we have Hello Fashion, our uh, monthly title as well. And there's about 12 people that work there. Um, and then, of course, we have the commercial team. So partnerships team has become much more integrated with editorial now. Obviously, the way that we work with advertisers, as you've probably seen in your other chats with people in publishing, has completely changed. And it's now much more of an a um, collaborative process. Um, and then the website is a growing team. Yeah, that's probably about 20 at the moment too.
0: Is that all the online content done by those 20 people, or do you use freelancers as well?
2: Occasionally we use freelancers if they bring in a particularly strong story. Um, most of it we do in-house. As you can imagine, our contacts are really a, a brilliant. I mean, between our whole team, that we can pretty much get to anyone that we need to. So yeah, so mostly in-house.
1: On that kind of context issue, um, would you ever consider writing a sort of Wicked Whispers style book, like the sort of tell-all that uh, Jessica Callan did when she was a a. 3am girl? Or or would you feel that would just be... I feel like it's not very hello.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. No, I never would. I feel like my relationships with people are built on trust, and I've become very good friends with lots of the people that we feature in the magazine, and I, I wouldn't do anything to betray that. Um, Like the magazine has always played the long game, we haven't gone for the quick fix by blowing a relationship just for one cover scoop. I think I'd feel the same about my career and life as well.
0: Was that something you were conscious of um, when you're doing The Silas, and obviously The the Silas takes Manhattan that someone could potentially read into it and think, hmm, (laughs) that sounds familiar. Yeah, I mean,
2: all the characters were fictional within it, but, you know, it was it is based on a real world. But then that's sort of half the fun where people can think who that might be. But ultimately, like with Hello, it's very celebratory of the entertainment and the fashion world. Um, you can still use humour and have fun with it, but be ultimately celebratory and kind. I actually wrote a piece in the back of the um, American edition of The Stylist Takes Manhattan, they called it when it came out in the States, um, about Amber Green, my central character, and how kindness is actually one of her most, you know, strongest kind of sort of personality traits. Um, Even though, you know, she's a she has quite a roller coaster life, and she's very f- funny, and um, but she's kind, really, in everything that she does.
1: People sometimes say that it's. In newspaper terms, it's harder to write for the Sun than the Telegraph. And would you say there's is there something similar with Hello versus say Vogue? Do you think there's an argument that's actually more complex to write for for your magazine than for?
2: No, I wouldn't necessarily more more complex. It's just different. It's about a different tone, really. And you know, I'm sure that we feature a lot of the same personalities but the tone of hello is very distinct and I really think it is one of the secrets of our success why our our brand is having such you know still such a great time it, even though times are tough on the newsstand um, we're still we're riding high as Britain's number one weekly glossy title so yeah so we're obviously doing something right.
0: I wonder whether part of that is, as you've said, the sort of emphasis on the multimedia packaging. So I read that a lot of readers come to you via uh, their phones and via tablets, but how do you create that sort of different experience between the online world and obviously the glossy magazine with the very high um, quality photographs?
2: Well, reading a magazine now is a luxury experience to actually take that time away from your phone and your computer and sit down with an, a print item. It's got to be filled with exclusive content, something that you won't read anywhere else. And it, it's a longer form, so the articles are much longer in the, uh, in the magazine than the less text um, and newsy feel of our articles online. Um, So I think it's about a luxury moment and having enough in there that's going to occupy you for perhaps a a longer amount of time. Whereas you might read a news story and sort of if it doesn't capture you literally within the first few seconds, then it's game over. Or you'll look at it for five minutes here and there. I think you sit down with a magazine and pour over it and notice the details in the pictures and go back to it a number of times through the week rather than read it all in one sitting. Um, so I think a luxury experience.
1: I know you alluded to, to sort of time management a bit earlier, but how do you how do you do these two strands of of running this this extremely intense magazine and and doing your books? Like how do you manage those two things?
2: Yeah, well, obviously, Hello is an extremely all-consuming full-time job, and it's not a you know it's not a nine to five job either. It's I'm there in any moment that the magazine the brand needs me um so the writing plays second fiddle and I it took me years to write my third book just between friends and I had to go back to the publisher I was meant to write it in a year and say I just can't it's impossible and and I didn't want to lose my love of creative writing as I mentioned it's something that I feel I have to have in my life because I'm so passionate about it and I felt that if I was being sort of driven by strict deadlines then it was going to lose that for me And I didn't think the book would be as good as it could be either. So luckily, my publisher was great and allowed me to take um, the time that I needed to write it. And then when things are a bit calmer at hello, at certain times of the year, I'll take off a few days and squirrel myself away in a hotel and get 10,000 words done. (laughs) And and a few trips like that, and it, it gradually builds up into a novel. But I think when you're a novelist, your characters do live inside your head and you're often thinking about them. Um, and I, I wrote a lot of the stylists on the, the notes function on my iPhone as well. Um, when I was going to work, and I would think of something and it came to me, I'd, I'd jot it all down. Um, and I think when you are passionate about something, and you love it so much, you find the time for it, really, you just get on with it.
1: This has been a fascinating interview and thank you for, for lifting the lid on both the um, the novel writing and on your, your extremely, or, as you say, all-consuming magazine world. So thanks so much and, and best of luck with everything.
2: Thank you. Really enjoyed it.
1: Hello, it's us again. Uh, Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Rosie?
0: What I found really interesting when doing the research for this was how it's grown its readership over the pandemic it's one of the rare publications sort of bucked the trend and and really thrived um as we've been discussing off air it was um interesting to talk to her about the ethos of kindness that that runs through the magazine and the way that they consider their journalism to be you know serving that aim how about you
1: i enjoyed it too i thought it was good that we we kind of wrestled with with some of those points i'm also have in the times we spoke to her, often thought about her description of interviewing Blue during her um, her teen publication heyday. And this idea of them interrupting the interview to occasionally burst into song, which is just an image that seems to sort of sum up so much of that kind of late 90s Milo. Um, but I thought she was a really great guest. And yeah, just a kind of door to a door to a hidden world. And she was very open and candid. And yeah, I enjoyed it.
0: What have you been working on yourself?
1: I have been... it's a lot of book stuff still going on. So the kind of review cycle is still continuing which is which is fun and kind of a roller coaster but but also quite weird um i have just last week closed the the sort of closure of my well i don't know but my third big covid piece for 1843 um which was good and a good kind of hopefully kind of closes the book on on the pandemic in a, in a bit of a way um and prepping for another trip so so it's been good but um yeah kind of busy busy week what about you
0: I was going to say quiet, <laughs> quiet in the ackham household. Um, yeah, usual stuff. I had a uh, week of annual leave to wrap up my coursework, which has flown by. So 15,000 words of my ramblings on film and television are now submitted.
1: Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so that's good. What, that what were you writing about? Uh, well, we had weekly installments since September. So it's sort of compiling those and it's meant to show what you've learned which means you read back the over the early stuff and think oh god that is so wrong (laughs) but the point is to show what you've learned so yes
1: what did you say about bridgerton
0: uh i talked about tone so actually it was um one of my assignments the course formed the basis of that piece on period dramas comparing bridgerton the great um and various other things so yeah it's all symbiotic
1: how interesting i've just been i'm almost now at the end of um Uh, the bureau this big french tv show and i was vaguely thinking we should maybe try and get the guy who wrote that on although i don't know if he'd speak english but it is yeah it is kind of amazing as you know 50 hours of tv tracing tracing that kind of arc and very good anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon akum
0: and me rachel lloyd
1: our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by
0: Jess Heiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter at Take Notes Always. You can find our crowdfunding page on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, please do.
1: Many thanks. Goodbye.